0: This episode of The Moment is brought to you by Braintree. Looking to set up payments for your business, Braintree gives your app or website a payment solution that accepts just about every payment method with one simple integration. Plus, we'll give you your first $50,000 in transactions fee-free. To learn more, visit braintreepayments.com slash moment. And by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater.
1: Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'll be following a team of elite cryptographers as they decode a highly classified radio transmission. To sum it up, extraterrestrials, the message, on iTunes. Hi, I'm Julie Lifcott Hames, the host of Getting In. I'm the former dean of freshmen at Stanford and the author of How to Raise an Adult. Getting In is a new podcast from Panoply, following a group of high school seniors through the college admission process. And right now is crunch
0: time, especially for students applying early decision. You know, when you put it all together, it's a lot. I don't really sleep. I drink a lot of black coffee. But, you know, I'm, I'm stressed, but I'm, I could be worse. I could be bored. That's what you'll hear on the new episode of Getting In from Panoply, available on iTunes, Stitcher, or
2: your favorite podcast app.
1: The following podcast contains explicit language.
0: Hey, this is the moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Quick special shout out to
2: your editor, my editor, Tom McCardle. I can't shout out to your editor. Oh yeah, you can shout out. Quick Tom shout McArdle. out to Tom McCardle right at the top. Yes, of course. I, I totally misunderstood it. I misunderstood. Is that
0: common for you? Do you misunderstand everything
2: that happens around that's, you all the time? Is it the secret to your success? That's how easy I am to communicate with. That's great to it know. The, the actors must fun. love that. Yeah, yeah. You Continue your shout out because he should get one. He's a big fan of your show.
0: And I'm a huge fan of Tom's. There you guys. And that's why right. I'm shouting out, you thought I was going to s- reveal a confidence you'd told me. Possibly. Which would be such a weird thing since off, Mike, I've never revealed a confidence no, no you're
2: like a steel trap. And it wasn't even a confidence about Tom, which is even better. No, I know. Wow, so removed. We could start over, but I won't. No, keep this. Um, although, gold. Although Tom, yeah. who is an amazing editor and a, and a very dear friend, um, at times can be slightly paranoid, and this will set alarm bells off. But you'll be, be able to tell him the story. I will, but he'll never believe me. That's even... better. He'll ask me a hundred times, are you sure it wasn't me? Are you, are you sure the confidence wasn't about me? Three films from now, he'll say, I just want to talk about that confidence. That's kind of great. Yeah. And now there's no way this is... that. If
0: nothing else from this podcast goes out of the world, this thing where you told me that... We weird secret about Tom and then said we couldn't talk about it, that's going out. That is going out into the world. We should just stop now. I think we've killed it. Hey, listen, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. My guest today is the great Tom McCarthy, and he is the writer, director of movies that I have absolutely loved, like The Station Agent, The Visitor, Spotlight, which is coming out a few days from now, November 6th. And which, for me, is my vote for best movie of the year. I think the only movie that's even close to it is Steve Jobs, and they've all gotten enough awards, those people. I agree. Don't you think? How many awards can you have? How many can you even put up on a mantle? You did look silly after a while. And um, Tom's also an actor, you know, from his work in things like uh, The Wire and in a whole bunch of other stuff. And uh, he also is an Oscar-nominated uh, screenwriter for a little, a little film you might know as Up. Good movie. Hell of a movie, and I think off camera you told me you wrote that entire opening sequence yourself, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs>
1: and
0: the I, opening 12 was just I, you. I, wasn't I actually
2: it? take credit for most of the artwork in the film now, too. Those yes. guys, they, they, they don't really know what they're doing. That's up what there. I was thinking. Yeah. And it was your idea to cast Asner. Yeah, I gotta, you got to do it all when you're there. This, the, they, I mean, that studio is barely holding it together.
0: That's what I thought. Yeah. That's what I'd heard. Wait, was I not supposed to reveal that?
2: No. Shit. At I'm this doing point, it again. Just reveal it all.
0: But. um... Man, I, I got to say, I'm I'm so happy, you know, it was, I was starting to say this before we turned the mics on, you showed me Spotlight early, like I think what, um, a couple months before you showed it, began screening it for the world. Yeah, I think so, yeah. And I have to say, it was one of the most fun things for me, because I told you that night, I mean, I knew what the people were going to say about it, I knew you had done it, like you had made a film that lived up to everything that you tried to do, and I'd heard the concept for the movie years before, and... It must feel incredible to have, because it's, it's so hard. You always set out with a, an idea in your head, a feeling you want to capture. And I imagine for you to actually have captured the thing you were going for must, must feel incredible. Or
2: can you see it yet? Uh, yeah, that's a, probably the second question maybe is more appropriate. I don't know if I can see it yet. You know, I think we're just—I'm feeling that the movie's working, and we've screened it enough now at festivals and now for these special screenings for different groups. That it, it feels like—first of all, it works for the people that we really wanted to make the movie for, which was the journalists and the survivors of, of, of abuse. I was
0: going to say, you don't mean journalists like the movie
2: critics. You no. mean—I
0: no, want to be clear because people might not know. That's such
2: a good point. Uh, I want to be really clear. That, that's how good you are. At this, (laughs) you're you're saving me as I hang myself. The film
0: is about the journalists in Boston who broke uh, the story about the archdiocese covering up the sexual abuse scandals and. You're talking about these heroic journalists who really dug incredibly deep to get that story to the world, and you're talking about the victims of that abuse when you're talking about the the, the journalists and victims, right? Yeah, maybe
2: we should start there, yeah. So the film Spotlight is about the Spotlight team at the Boston Globe, this four-person investigative unit, and it deals with their 2001 investigation into exactly what you just explained. Um, And um, my co-writer and I, Josh Singer, sat down with these journalists probably three years ago now, and... Listen, you know, uh, sat down with them multiple times. Went back and again and again to Boston. Also sat down with some of the survivors of abuse. And um, you know, I think when you distill the process down, I think our mantra was like, "Let's get it right," so that when a journalist sees that, when an in- investigative journalist sees this film, he'll he'll think that we got it right. That we uh, we captured their world. And that's a tricky thing to capture, I think. Yeah, I'm so
0: interested in how you did it and in, in, in how you managed to make something that is narratively compelling at the same time it's really granular in its exploration of how they did what they did and i want to know how you thought about it but i i've been telling everybody about the film you just sent me a link and i'm going to watch it for a second time tonight with amy and i have to say it's really stayed with me i remember like every minute from it but i want to i want to back up tom because look your your career has been um you know like one success after another after another but i want to start with failure because i think it's incredibly inspiring to me as somebody who tries to do this stuff that, you know, you've made this movie after the only true like kind of failure that you had as an as an as an artist, um, and I, which I'm not saying that the movie was itself creatively a failure. Right. But, I you know, the cobbler was critically and commercially the, the one thing you'd ever done. And I think most people that it wasn't um, lauded right, right away. Right. And then you had this incredibly ambitious, difficult, uh, highly rigorous and smart thing you were trying to get off the ground. And I know most of us would have, like, given up, taken writing jobs, just tried to, like, find commercial success. And I want to know, like, you know, when I've made films that didn't work or that failed, you know, when you're the writer-director, like, all falls on you. Yeah. How did you think about it, and how did you steal yourself, and, like, how did you put this thing on your back again and tell yourself, that you could do it. Like, how'd you make yourself feel special enough to do this again?
2: It's <laughs> a good way of putting it. Actually. Um, we all try to make ourselves feel special. Um, <laughs>
0: Tony Gilroy said that to me once Did that I know? was like, how what do you do? And he goes, I walk around the city until I feel special enough to
2: tell the story. Amazing. that man he has like Gilroy has the perfect answer for everything, even if you don't understand it, which is which what well, quite often i don't understand it. I just nod like I do I throw
0: things that he says in life into movies all the yeah, time yeah yeah he's, I, I have a character in yeah. in in billion saying something that Tony once said to me, yeah, and you still don 't understand it you almost, almost. <laughs> like, you're sitting in the editing room and you watch it again and again, you get it, but you know he's amazing. So, no, tell me. Uh, So,
2: uh, well, look, um, you know, first off uh, with The Cobbler, uh, yeah, you're right about how it was received. And, um, you know, I think with every film I ever ever have made, I I feel like I'm just pushing myself and writing what I think is interesting and inherent in that is a fair amount of risk. I think every movie I've made could... Could fail, <laughs> right? There's always that that line, and I think when you look at the storylines and you look at what I'm dealing with, it can go either way. And um, so I think I stopped looking at it that way in terms of victory and failure, even though we kind of live in a society that sort of makes that. Very, <laughs> well, and well, in a business that's yeah, brutal, over it. brutal, and, and it is. You know, right? As a writer director, I'm kind of on the mound, and if I give up the run, I and give when up you're the run. Shettled. Yeah, you're sitting out there, <laughs> taking the hits, thinking, why aren't they taking me out of this game? Right. Um, but they, there's no one to. Really really take you out of the game. So, you know, um, you're right. The Cobbler was unique for me in that way. Like, I'd never experienced that. In fact, I experienced it. I was in Toronto prepping Spotlight. I was probably about six weeks out when this was all going down at the Toronto Film Festival. Oh, and you're in Toronto yeah, yeah, and your yeah. movie is bombing yeah. at Toronto. Yeah, getting killed. Oh. God, the word bombing. Do we have to throw that around so much? It was a disaster. <laughs> Unbelievable. This is a Sunday afternoon. <laughs>
0: Uh, <laughs> no, but the point is, you've now made the best movie of the year, so it, and, and it's being received as such. So I think that's that's nice. No, but I mean that's the, no, no. So it isn't it. Look, man, it, it is a mental thing, right? This totally. is totally. I'm fascinated by it. I have totally. been my whole life by how somebody who is like a peak performer can get crushed and then process it in a way that's different from the way many other people would pro- like a lot of people would fold up the fucking tent so what did it feel like well first
2: of all I didn't really have a choice because I was why? deep in pre it would have been weird if I left pre-production on Spotlight six weeks <laughs> yes. out and, I- and they said why is he going home because his feelings are hurt people didn't like his other movie that would have been a weird thing I would have to explain <laughs> that to people uh, but you do have to sort of wake up in the morning and go to work and know that's out there uh, in the world so it plays at Toronto to bad press and you have to show up and like see everybody well, you know, what's really interesting about that is the Toronto Film Festival didn't want the movie. Uh, granted, it's a unique movie. And, and I got to say, for the record, I, I love the movie and I stand by the movie. And I think there's a lot there and we can address Well,
0: how, that's a huge thing, by the way, it if you,
2: for you to eat, feel and say sort of like not caring. It is. And it ties into a, the bigger conversation here, which is they, they sort of stuck that movie at the end of the festival. They didn't know what to make of it. And quite honestly, a lot of people didn't. It's not what I usually do. And that was the point of it. Um, and they did a sort of press industry screening at the very beginning of the movie at 830 in the morning and it didn't go so well at the beginning of the festival at the beginning of the festival sorry and it didn't go so well and so the press were all over it. But no one had seen the movie. Had yeah. you known that, like, um, had you anticipated that or you didn't? Uh, I anticipated they could were be the Were there rough. any warning signs?
0: So- I'm uh, saying were there warning uh, no, signs I had no
2: warning signs. <sighs> so we were like just finishing throughout there. So I was sort of that. I remember I was, I think I went for a run. And I got back and my phone started lighting up. I was like, row, this isn't good. <laughs> they told and, uh, you. I mean, people
0: <laughs> told you right away. People give
2: me a heads up. And... Uh, you know, you kind of have to know the stuff for the sales and the business end of it. And it was all kind of playing out. But we hadn't screened the movie and we didn't screen for four or five days later at the very end. So by that point... Sandler was also up there. Uh, he was working on Pixels, and uh, we were having dinner one night and just kind of talking about it. And we both realized that no one had seen the movie, but this room full of critics and how unique that was. And um, uh, as as you probably know, the press loves to go after Adam. They 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 just have this thing for him. They you know they really go after him, and and he handles it very well. And also, for the record, he's one of the best guys I've ever worked with. Uh,
0: I'm sure that that's true. I've met him a handful of times, and he's always been just as good a dude as you could hope for ego, when I'm Yeah.
2: Back. And, and on, as a professional, he works hard and he cares and he means it and he contributes and he sets his ego aside and he's just value added across the board and he's just a terrific, terrific man. So we've formed this, and I didn't know Adam at all before this movie. So we, you know, are kind of dealing with it Anyway, three days later we go to the the big theater we were screening and 1,200 people or whatever and at this point I was feeling as anyone would who had a movie that was sort of they were kind of going after a little beat up right and a little ragged and I was working around the clock in pre-production and spotlight and I had to throw in a suit and go to a premiere of this movie in the
0: middle of like prep and you're walking in the everything else and when you, in, in pre-production as a director you're trying so hard to get everybody on your back yeah. and supporting you yeah. and then I'm, I'm sure that after those reviews hit like the first day you're walking down that <laughs> like in the yeah. middle of all those desks yeah. and you're trying to tell everyone this one's going to be great it's all- hard <laughs> <You're> li- <laughs> oh,
2: it's tough it's, it's, it's true it's, it's all really interesting right and it is a dynamic that is so human it's tough to ignore or, or even deny because it's all true on some level but what happened which was most liberating is shortly after this happened in those three or four days between the press and, and the screening I, I had a strong sense of uh, I don't know feeling liberated uh, it's the only word I can come up with I understand I that. was suddenly like this is it This no one's even seen the movie and this is the extent of it. And and I look, good or bad, I don't read a lot of reviews. I will over time if I'm curious about something or I hear something interesting and everyone around me is reading all of them so I can kind yeah, of... Yeah, you
0: get someone... F- yeah, they I, forward I you the thing you I, have to Look, see, I think yeah. there's
2: some very good critics out there and have some very interesting things to say. And we can learn from analysis of our work. But usually, good or bad, including Spotlight, I don't read a lot of them. So, uh, but I started feeling kind of, I don't know, not if not liberated, emboldened by this. And I can't quite explain why... I It surprised me. I understand it. And then we got to the screening, and I sat in this big theater with uh, 1,200 people. And look, I have sat in a lot of movie theaters around the world with all of my films, and the film played great exactly like I wanted to in moments where I'm like, that's this, that's this. You know, as you could just feel a film as a director. And I remember we were all kind of looking around, me and my team, who was a bit shell-shocked at this point, because it's the same team I've made three uh, good films with. And we, uh, we kind of went backstage afterwards and then went on stage for Q&A, and it was really fun and lively, and the audience was really um, engaged. And um, I felt, uh, if not validated, I, 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 I sort of furthered my sense of either liberation or feeling emboldened by the process and realizing, look, all, all I can do is keep telling stories. Like literally all I can do is go back to work and sometimes they're going to love you and sometimes they're going to hate you and sometimes it's in between. Um, but there's felt something, I felt sort of a, a rite of passage in some way. And that uh, you'd never been touched by that before. Yeah, yeah. And it was really interesting and I was like, okay, got this feeling. For the record, it's not all good. <laughs> but uh, you do learn a lot from it. You know, all those cliches about you learn more in failure, I think. Um, I think I think are true. I, I will say even when I have a film that works, um, I'm constantly rethinking it years and years later. I'm constantly thinking, sure, could have done this differently, could have done that differently. But so.
0: it's much better when you know. Like I, I, I've told this before, so I'll say it quickly. But when when Rounders first came out, the first two reviews were terrible and they hit a week before all the others. It was yeah. Time and Newsweek, and they landed a week before everything else for some right? reason. Yeah. And I got these two horrible reviews, and they singled Dave and me out as being the thing that sucked in this movie. <laughs> it was like the writers ripped off all this, and I, I so I was horrified and devastated in a fetal position. And then I woke up the next. I swear to you, I woke up the next morning, and I was fine. And I felt like, oh, they can't actually touch me. Yeah. Because I knew the movie was, I will say, because I knew that we'd done what we wanted to do. Right. So, like, okay. Now, I've had, you know, I've written on movies that were not good. And right. that hurts in a different way. Because yeah. you know, oh, I wish I could have done all this. I, I know. And, and you want to be able to get out in front of it and go, like, I know. But here with The Cobbler, where you knew you made your movie. Yeah. I guess you were able to say, okay, I still, I'm going to bet on 10 years from now or whatever. I made my
2: own Pretty much, yeah, and I just, I felt, I, and, and it's funny, even now, I feel really good about it, and of course, I've, you know, in the early press of Spotlight, uh, which has been very good, and we feel very fortunate for that as a, as a, as a filmmaking team, because it's never just me, it is a team, um, good or bad, um, you know, we feel happy about that, but yeah, of course, journalists have wanted to talk to me about this very thing, the cobbler first time, he got really beat up, and i are coming back strong with Spotlight, and, you know, I guess it's an interesting talking point, and, um, I'm actually up for it as long as we possibly address the bigger picture, too, which is sort of film critics and analysis, which I think we could look at also. What do you mean, look at it? Well, I just think what's interesting about it right now is like, look, I just made a movie about journalism. Yes. And I think, as you know, and and I think one of the points is that, uh, you know, since we made this movie, which was set in 2001, the industry has just been completely decimated.
0: Obliterated. Right. So it
2: barely exists in the form that we show it in the movie anymore. And that's a big problem. Uh, Yeah, I think about it all the time. You know, my my
0: son is a great young journalist at uh, the most prestigious college newspaper in the country. And he's like an editor at the paper at a very young. And I look and I'm like. I hope these four years are really fun doing this hobby that barely,
2: like, what do you do with that now? Yeah, Yeah, it's like opera or something, yeah. (laughs) Yeah,
0: like, he's great at it, and he loves it, and I've never even, like... I have no idea how that would, what kind of, what that means other than if you work at one of two places uh, in yeah. the
2: world. Yeah, so. well, look, I think, I think to that end, uh, you know, I think there's, you know, we've already, I've already talked to some young college journalists who have seen this movie and I've done my roundtables, which I love, by the way. I love going to cities like Washington, sit around with a bunch of students, but. Well, have you done it up there where he is? I have no, I'm not gone up there yet. So we'll make that happen. But I think there's twofold with those guys. Not only do we hope the movie somehow inspires young journalists to do their job and do it well, but we also have to inspire some young person, some innovator who understands both and loves legacy journalism as we know it and new media and, and the Internet who can somehow crack the code of what's the new model. You know what's the new model for journalism that somehow allows us to have not just strong national presence, but more particularly a really strong local presence in these cities and towns around the country where papers are drying up and disappearing. There's no one to keep watching anything anymore, and we need those newspapers.
0: But you're saying so that, that that's clearly the case. But but how does that how does that tie into? critics having their knives yeah, out for right. you on so, the other thing.
2: Yeah, so just to put a fine point on that before, and then, I'll, and then I'll reach that, is, you know, I think ultimately that's what the film Spotlight's about, right? Because it is. It's a local story that started in Boston and had this sort of global repercussion. Yeah. So we keep going back to that. So, you know, when I get back to, look, and it's always dangerous, but I think I'm, I'm not talking about critics in an emotional way at all. I just, now I've had several conversations with some very good ones around the country about this very thing, which is the industry, as you just said, has been obliterated. Well, of course that affects arts and entertainment, and of yes. course that affects editors and reporters of arts and entertainment. And what does it do? It really, you know, they, they have to. For one, the response time is you you, you you come out of a screening and people are what they're they're there's, tweeting about yeah, it. They're the blogging. competition to get the boom, point get, it out there there and get it points, out there. Quickly. Three points, three points, three points, three points. I've no, got to get out right away. So there's that, and then it just starts to question how thoughtful is the analysis anymore. How thoughtful is where they take a break, take a moment, pause and say, what did he do? What didn't work? What did work? Let's break it down. I feel like, in both victory and defeat everything seems very definitive and at times even one note and i feel like that's something to look at because look there's a lot to learn from a really thoughtful analysis of a film good or bad but more often than not it feels like maybe in the in the bigger picture now we're losing even that and uh, i think that's too bad you know
0: but you but i can't imagine that emotionally you were able to take much sucker from that in the initial moments of the thing, and I guess what I'm what I'm interested in is: Are you the kind of person who can put it, who can absorb it, take it for a day, and then rearview review it somehow and move forward? I'm pretty good at that. And is that something you've always? Is that something like you've just had? You know, at a young age, uh, you know, you, you ask a girl out, it doesn't go well. You can go
2: on to the next. Or yes, did you? Have I to, was very was good it, at that actually, because I was tiny and I could never get a date. So, I but my my confidence was high. So. <laughs> That's what so you could. Yes, I kept walking away, being like, "You don't know what you're missing out on." <laughs> Right. Apparently they all did know exactly what they were exactly. missing out on, and they right. did
0: not care. It's so funny how many people have sat in the chair across from a creative artist now, and it like literally does just go back to yeah. the reductive thing of, yeah. I know I was special, the girls didn't, yeah. and I was going to go prove it yeah. to them. Yeah, I think I asked Somehow. like
2: five girls in a day to the prom, and I think the fifth one said yes. Out of I think I came back to her. I think I circled back. You
0: circled, you doubled back. I think it was
2: out of a combination of pity and exhaustion. Even, she just wait, said, yeah. that's even
0: your senior year of high school? Yeah, I think so. You were still you were small. I yeah, was year. tiny. When did you grow?
2: Freshman year of college, six inches. Wow! Oh. Whole new game. That's Michael Jordan level totally. stuff right there. <laughs> totally. I mean, Except that I in... went from five four to six foot. Yeah, but still, so, still, honestly, changed still your, didn't get me on the court. Changed your life. Though. Yeah. No, my senior high school, my junior year I wrestled one oh one, and senior year I was going to wrestle one oh eight, and I ended up not. Ended up not wrestling. I mean, that's the difference between Danny Strong and John Hamm. I mean, right it's there, big... right. That's a big six inches. Strong's just sitting there drinking his coffee. Like, why do they <laughs> got to drag me? in I love Danny.
0: I'm a very and I'll successful tell you, I, I, He's the most. Who's more? Yeah. No, who's no, a better guy? He's been in here. Yep, nice guy. Great uh, writer. Great writer. Great guy. I think I gave him two inches just now. Too. You might have. You so, might have. I think I helped. The and, and, cause. And, I didn't and let's hurt be honest. Ham
2: doesn't need any help. He doesn't oh. need your help.
0: It's true. Listen, I, I will say I had the line in my head for like 20, 10 seconds before I said it. And I, I never did. I weighed it. I actually weighed whether it was fair. And mm-hmm. then I was like, Empire is the biggest show in the history of television. Danny created it. He can take
2: it. Amazing.
0: I decided he could yeah. take it.
2: You know, I always knew that guy had Empire in him. You just look at him and you just know.
0: Oh, no, you just piled yeah. on. Yeah. He's- you just <laughs>
2: totally piled on. I know. That's so wrong. You're right. I'm going to have to call him. He's like the
0: nicest person I know in show business. And if it changes today, it's because of the two of us. Yeah,
2: yeah, because we could probably affect him. (laughs) No, it's true. He's on. (laughs) From this windowless pod that we're in together. (laughs) Yeah. You
0: know what? He won't. Let's be honest. He's making empires. He's not listening to the podcast. he's He's busy. This episode of The Moment is brought to you by Braintree, code for easy mobile payments. Braintree makes mobile payments so fast, easy, and seamless, it's almost magical. Add it to your app with just a few lines of code, and you're instantly ready to accept Apple Pay, Android Pay, PayPal, Venmo, credit cards, even Bitcoin. And if some other way to pay comes along, we'll support that too. Braintree's fast payouts and continuous support means you'll always be ready, whether you're earning your first dollar or your billionth. To check it out for yourself, visit braintreepayments.com moment. That's braintreepayments.com moment. In, in high school, were you acting? No. Not at all. I played sports. What was it? You wrestled at one, one-on-one. I wrestled? And a win-win I left out before, which is... A win-win. A lot of people think, you know, that until Spotlight, that's a lot of people's favorite movie of yours.
2: Yeah, it's funny. It's interesting with, you know, when you start to have a few movies under your belt, like, what people pick up on, and people are like, have a very definite idea, and it's from... It's like, it's almost... I can't tell which one wins out from hearing back from people. It's oh, really, really interesting, yeah. Agent
0: isn't, like, the thing that people...
2: They kind of have remember, a special relationship with. They do, and then win-win and visitor is very divided depending on how you like your movies, you know. Right. Um, and I think um, it's really interesting to hear back.
0: No, I mean, listen, um, you're one of the few filmmakers I've seen. I've seen all your movies. I think.
2: Hmm.
0: Well, it's only five. That's a lot. That a, is, I appreciate it. I mean, it's a lot it. to real to yeah. see. Yeah, I've watched a few of them more than once. A Station agent. I remember going to see Station agent. And it was one of those movies that left me walking around the city in that incredible, bittersweet, joyous haze where you're like, the world shifted. You know, oh, someone found a way to tell this very particular personal story and um, made it something that I really cared about. And I really still feel like I know those characters somehow
2: that's nice yeah yeah your first film is always I think it's always a special thing and when it connects with audiences and especially because a lot of the people involved Peter Dinklage and Bobby Cannavale and Patty Clarkson they were all just good friends of mine uh, so it definitely had a has a special place in my heart so movie. I, I want to go back
0: a little bit because I, I I don't know that you've done a ton of this stuff with, with people and I don't know that people have a great context for how this came they sort of know the story a little bit oh you were an actor who decided to write this movie and mm-hmm. found a way to get it made but like, what was your path? Did you grow up around people who were artists? Was being an artist something that everybody thought about? Are there are a lot of kids in
2: your neighborhood that that's what they were going to go do? No. Where'd you all. grow up? New Providence, New Jersey. It's actually where Win Win is set. Yeah. Um, and uh, no, uh, I'm, there was a theater in the school in the high school. Uh, I didn't have anything to do with it. Uh, you know, I played sports and uh, wrestling and what else? Wrestling, soccer, and tennis. Or my yep. sports, and uh, you know, I come from a family of brothers and one sister, or five kids, uh, and and uh, you know, pretty normal upbringing uh, in a lovely little town. What your what your Dad do for a living? He was a he was a in textiles. When he retired, he was a CEO of a, of a company called uh, Fieldcrest Cannon, which did towels and sheets and things. So he was a business he was a business person, full on business. As is pretty much everyone else in my family right now.
0: Right. And you know. so did you, did some part of you know, like, oh, I'm, I'm interested in the arts in a different way? Like, how did it dawn no, for you? No, not really. You know, the
2: one thing I did is I had a passion for Broadway growing up. Like, I loved seeing musicals and, and, and mostly musicals because plays hadn't even reached me. Really? Yet. Yeah. What do you, you
0: mean you didn't know there was such a thing as like a serious?
2: I, d- yeah, I think we were just, I think my family, when we would go in, we would go in mostly to see musicals. And I just kind of got hooked on them and loved them. And I remember being like 13 and like begging my father to see Avita uh, with Patti Lapone and Mandy Patinkin. Great commercial.
0: I, I I'd beg too we're I mean, the same, I mean, How could you not I begged
2: to see Mandy that. Uh, looks so yeah, badass You were supposed right? to be immortal
0: When she would sing When he would sing that line In the right. commercial You like had to go Great
2: commercial So yeah. I went for my birthday And so And I would go year after year After year And see whatever You know was, you mean, for your birthday You would say Take me to see a play Yeah, yeah. A But musical. the funny thing was I would have this amazing night I'd come home I'd think about it I remember sitting in my bed Looking at playbills And just reading all the bios And being like Who are these really weird people And how do they do this And then I would close it Put it in a drawer And never think about it again I wouldn't even go into school the next day and talk about it.
0: Wow, yeah. it was
2: your private, special it it. thing. I loved
0: it. It was so great. And Who, would then, you take
2: a friend with you? No. If I, if anyone went with me, it was a sibling.
0: And your th- parents, a sibling, and you yeah. go to the theater in New York. Yeah. You would obsess over the book for a night. Mm-hmm. Read it really closely. Mm-hmm. Shut it and be done. Mm-hmm. Awesome!
2: I do remember when my dad took me to a Vita. A very funny thing. It was just the three of us, and we got into the doorway of the of the theater. Uh, I forget what theater was. I should really find that out. And uh, and this and this gentleman approaches. He was like a, a, a chauffeur looking gentleman with an accent, and he said, "My boss is in that car out there." And there's a very fancy black limousine. He said, "We would like to pay you whatever you want for your tickets because he's in town and he needs three tickets." And my dad's like, uh, "Well, the tickets, uh, you know, it's my, uh, you know," and he's like, "He'll pay you whatever you want." I remember my dad looking at me. I was just old <laughs> enough to be like, "Don't do it, man. It's me. It's your, my birthday." And uh, and I, I think you know I could see my mother looking at my father like, "Don't do it, man. You can't don't do, do he'll that. never forgive you." And he finally was like, "I could regretfully like, you know, I don't think we can do it." Thinking probably he could have made some coins. What a scene! Had the guy over a barrel, right? So uh, it could
0: be that they were worried about you and they wanted to see how much this meant to you, and absolutely. they set the whole thing up
2: absolutely. And you I know, I think you could see the desperation in my eyes I needed this night it got me through the rest of the school year why uh, no I just I yeah. just loved it and then we and then we went and saw it and it was a truly great performance and then it's interesting when I went back right before I direct the station agent the, the, I went back to uh, I did my first play on Broadway as an actor and it was a noises off and in the play, I, my love interest was Patti LuPone. Wow. The, the, now, at that point, was sort of the... She older, was an older woman. Yeah, who I was right. supposed you're... to be having an affair with. And did you tell her the story? I told her, of course. She was horrified that yeah, I was I was going to say, you tell yeah, her early on? I told Are her, her all, yeah, no. She's like, oh, God, I feel so old. Stop it. I don't want to hear that. It's very funny. And, and so, um, but, so you're going to these plays, but you're not thinking about it as no, a career. No, Never.
0: Never, not a career in your mind.
2: Never, it didn't a exist. Secret career to you or no? no I, from you know, look at that age, it just doesn't exist. You know, it either exists or it doesn't. And I think at that point, I wasn't maybe the most curious kid. I, I was. Were you a good student? I was a good student. Yeah, and. Um, I was into it, but I was a little bored in high school. My mother said to me recently, she actually told my wife this, she goes, Tommy was the one kid we should have sent to private school. Like, he just got bored, and he started to check out, and he didn't try as hard. And I think that's probably true. I think I got a little bored, and and my my sort of uh, focus was all over the place. Were you writing short stories? Nothing. Did you know you were a writer? Nothing creative. Was there any sort of objective
0: evidence that someone could have looked at and said, oh, Tommy has uh, an ability
2: for this stuff. Tommy. Did your Boston just come out, buddy? I just felt like doing it, yeah. Um, No... I don't know you'd have to ask my folks uh, but I, not that
0: you knew not, not that, that anyone I know. said
2: no 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 I mean no no the closest I came is we had to do a special French project from I was an advanced French. I loved French and I was an, had to take out a special project and all these people were writing these things and I set up a French cafe in my basement and invited my entire class and my parents being like, what are you doing hey, that's that's <laughs> so, something, but it's not so, this no so so no, that's go, about as close as I got you go off to to college. Mm-hmm. Thinking you're going to study what? I went as a in I went to study uh, I went to the business school because everyone else in my family did. And I just, and where'd you go? Uh, Boston College, right? Um, which factors into Spotlight. <laughs> and yeah. uh, I went uh, studied business uh, for about a year and a half. Uh, tried hard. Uh, had a professor who was actually my older brother's professor who went there too. And he called me in after class one day and said, uh, "How you doing?" I said, "Great, I'm working hard. How I, How do you think I'm doing?" He goes, not so good. I don't <laughs> I don't think you should be in this school. Really? Yeah. Very nicely. And what was his reason? His reason was he thought I was a smart kid who was applying myself, uh, but not having much success. And it was because I didn't really have a connection to what I was studying. What did that feel like? I'm going to use the word liberating for the second time in this podcast. I get it. I suddenly was like looking at this guy and he so caught me by surprise because he was kind of kicking me out of the school. And I not really didn't have that authority, but I just thought, wow, he's absolutely right. I really don't care about this. And I changed majors that day. To what? Philosophy. I mean, that does tell you something about
0: how you process things, that both things felt liberating to you. In yeah. other words, that I could have taken it as <laughs> a lot of people because a lot of people get laid low right? yeah, and yeah. they get yeah. because they they start to believe that there's some legitimate judgment being right. rendered on them. You didn't. You were like, oh, that path is not one I the, you know, you're like, oh, right. that's not that yeah. pathway's closed.
2: Ah, that's great. It right. means there's all these other. Exactly. You just had that. I did. I remember I was really excited because I had, at that point, taken a couple of philosophy classes, and I thought they were fascinating. And I was like, this is great. The only thing I had to do was call my father and say, hey, I'm changing. And that, to me, I thought was going to be a big deal. And what happened? He was like, great. I mean, there was no drama at all. He was just like, oh, you need to learn to read and write, and you need to you know, study what you want. And I thought, wow, that was really easy.
0: And still no acting?
2: No. And so you switch philosophy. You you start. You dig started it. doing that, and then uh, the day it had two things happened. One, I was dating a girl who's fewer years older than me, a young woman who was few years older than me, and she one time said to me out of the blue, "Have you ever done theater?" And, and I said, uh, "No, I haven't." It, like didn't even dawn on me. I was like, "Why I should bring this up? Should you should try it?" it you should go to the because you were a storyteller. Yeah, I could picture why because you're a really good storyteller and also she and was older and more mature anyway and probably be, you know by girl years probably infinitely you know 20 years more mature than I was at that point and probably just could see you know my interests and in stuff. Were someone. you going to a lot of movies? Uh, Do they mean anything mm, to you? Like, what would have I, been your
0: favorite movies then?
2: I love them, but very popular mainstream. No, like, I was yeah, by like, no means uh, like a fan of cinema. Like, like yes, did Star Wars blow my mind? Yes, Star Wars blew my mind. Like I remember thinking, like, wow.
0: Right, when you were in, whatever, fifth grade or something. Yes,
2: yes, yes. And I remember I also had a job, a high school job, where this guy who was kind of a, kind of a he was in a band and stuff, and he would sometimes show me weird movies that I thought were weird at the time that I was like, that's pretty, like he showed me hair and Maud, and i remember thinking wow that's kind of amazing right you got that yeah i got it but not as much as i get it now i just remember it kind of blew my mind and like i've never seen you were seen like she's a man.
0: that's the most incredible thing relationship I've ever, I've ever
2: seen and i didn't know that could ever be done and those stories could make me feel that way so i had like some people working in my life kind of well, on someone
0: the, yeah showing you how ashby film is yeah, a big deal i mean it's right. a big deal yeah. when you're he showed 14. me that and
2: repo man yeah, oh, I, yes, those are the two that movies. That blew my
0: mind then, too. I totally, yeah, I saw all the big popular movies also, and I forget that somebody showed me Repo Man right? too around that. Remember and how cool just,
2: Repo Man was when he came out? It was yeah, really that trunk, cool. Yeah, trunk, I
0: couldn't believe, yes. So cool! It blew my mind. So you, you but still, the woman's like, "Hey, have you thought about doing this?"
2: And I, I thought no. And then she pushed me on it, and I, I, I don't remember the exact details, but basically, I went and I, I went to the theater to audition. They were holding open auditions. She let me know. She's like, "Go and audition." So I showed up. I got in this line of people. The line led through this room where you sign up right to the stage. It was classic, like the guys in the audience saying, "Next," and you walk on stage. But everyone was walking on stage. This might speak a bit to my development or lack thereof. And they just started talking doing monologues I didn't know what the hell a monologue was so I sat there watching like what is that person saying how do they know <laughs> that that's too good and, uh, and I got closer and closer to the front of the line and I just walked out I was like I right. can't do this you didn't terrifying. have something prepared no, and didn't I, know I was what to do. terrified and I left so that was my first, misstep. and that was like sophomore year. Or something. That was, and then shortly thereafter, uh, another friend recommended that I try out for this comedy improv group called uh, uh, Every Mother No, called My Mother's Fleet. When you walked out like the next day, did you think about it? At Never all? talked you think about it.
0: You didn't. You just didn't did, tell anyone. Just roommates, out. nothing.
2: It was like the playbill in the drawer. Oh, that's never awesome. happened. Fantastic. Yeah, I just shut it and thought, okay, that was a disaster. I'm never going back there. But then, probably a month or two later, someone mentioned this improv comedy group, and I showed up for that audition. I don't know why, uh, but it was a totally different vibe. It was like playing. It was like in a room. They were all kind of interesting. And you people. knew you were quick and funny, and you yeah. Kept, and like, I figured I could play that game, and it and I was accepted to that group. And it was a big group on Boston College. Uh, Amy Poehler was one of their alumni too. A few years after me, we never worked together, and. Um, and they're just a big hit on Boston College, and, and, then, and that was kind of the beginning of it. Then I kind of got the bug. And then you start doing it, and does it occur to you, oh, I can do this for
0: my life? No, that didn't occur until uh, after college. So I know you were at Yale Drama with um, friends of ours, with mm-hmm. uh, Giamatti was, was there with mm-hmm. you, and Andy, who you work with, was mm-hmm. there with you. Um, did, did you go straight?
2: Uh, did I go straight? Did you go straight from college? No, no. I, after college, uh, I ended up moving to Minneapolis with members of that group that I mentioned. So you were taking that really seriously. You were doing it. Yeah. yeah. You guys were, were going to go be an improv yeah, troupe and open a theater. We moved to Minneapolis, all lived in a house together, wrote and performed comedy for about two and a half years. And we did it. We made a living. We performed everywhere. Now, how was that phone call home? that didn't go so well
0: that was there was
2: more drama <laughs> that, that with that folk that oh. was not so great that one i actually drove down to new york and had a business lunch with my dinner my dad at a place on 41st and 8th in like a mart, a classic martini like Wally's kind of place. or something. Oh, like so a place school. like w- like one of those places. So I, I gotta find it totally. And we and and I remember telling him this, and he looked at me at that point. Like I, I came to tell him I had a crack habit and I needed money because he just couldn't get his. <laughs> he couldn't rented. understand it. No, and then he he said, "Okay, we'll come up and see you." At that summer, we performed on Cape Cod, and this group, and he came up, and my mom and I, with my mother, and they sat and they watched us perform in a bar. Where mid mid act, a drunk got up on stage, and we had to. Form <laughs> like oh no! You
0: have to do improv. Remove the, the guy in the middle of it. Remove and, and the guy. This is your your parents who'd put five kids through like college thinking, oh, had to come up. We and never you do should this. have
2: taken them to a in thirteen. We right. should have sold no, the movies. Sold the, the tickets to the Venezuelan chauffeur. If
0: you had sold the tickets, and everything would have been fine. Yeah. yeah. So they they were not um, uh, overly supportive at the time,
2: but you over time uh they knew they started to realize I was serious about it and uh and look I you know it was a crazy time for me too I was in Minneapolis I was letting loose a little bit I was trying to figure it out I was writing a lot of comedy I was you know probably living a little too hard having a little bit too fun I was a young guy and when, what years is this do you think? that was uh 90 uh probably like 89 90 91. In replacements. There? I
0: mean, that was a big scene yeah. in Minneapolis yep. then. Yeah, Soul right? Asylum
2: was really hot then. Uh, yeah. It was a great
0: time to be in that yeah, place. yeah Dave Perner
2: actually lived right next door to me. Really? Yeah, with Mark Perlman of the Blue J- of the uh, what was it? The Blue Jays? Was that that guy? The J, J- Jayhawks
0: Jayhawks. Oh, they're a great
2: great band, band oh, right? Mark J- Perlman lived. Oh, the- yep. they're a great band. So you had the Jayhawks and Soul yeah, Asylum. Yeah, those guys lived shared a house. Not the whole band, but I know Pearlman. Yeah, well, and, and he and Perlman that are the band.
0: other guys they
2: there are those two songwriters, the yeah. Jayhawks. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: so they were right there. You were in that scene. You were living hard, having yeah, fun,
2: having a you know relatively for a twenty-one or twenty-two year old, having a good time.
0: But, and did the idea of becoming a storyteller surface at that time, or you were just like having fun performing?
2: I was taking it seriously, and I was doing it to the point where I finally auditioned for my first play there at the Guthrie Theater in a tiny bit part. I had a walk on. Like and you one got line the park. part. I got it was one line. But you got it. I did get it. It felt pretty good. And that's such a beautiful professional theater. The, the, the director at the time was this young new guy out of Seattle called Doug Hughes, which if you know theater at all, is one of the bigger Broadway directors out there and a, a lovely man, a super talented guy. We've since reconnected. And he was sort of the hot shot young guy coming into the Guthrie and directed the front page, MacArthur Hecht. Spotlight. So I'm coming back to Spotlight, which is a great newspaper. I
0: acted. Play. In the, I played Hilly Johnson right? once in yeah, uh, yeah. in
2: the front page. Yeah, I had, I had two lines. I was a cop, so you
0: you did well, better I was than me. Sleep, I was at camp when yes. I did it, so it doesn't really it doesn't really count. What camp. So camp in New Hampshire, and nice. it was great because like nobody knew me the whole summer. It was like I wasn't popular at this camp. Didn't have a lot of friends there this one summer, and then I acted in this play. The thing like I acted in the play. And then afterwards, like, all these people came up to me, and they were like, whoa, you can do something. And it was, like, a great— <laughs> That's like, cool, right? It was a great, really amazing yeah. moment because I made them laugh. I was able yep. to, like the place funny. Really and funny. I was able to make them laugh, and they saw me for this brief moment. I mean, it goes away, sadly. Yeah. I mean, three days later, the fact that I couldn't run the 100-yard dash was a problem again. <laughs> <laughs> but for the, for the period of time between— Yeah, I know that, man. I know that.
1: Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'm going to take you into an elite cryptography think tank and check it out. Their top project right now is to decode a highly classified radio transmission from the 1940s. Have you listened to it yet? Not yet. Uh, we're having a discussion about that. But if I offered you the chance to listen to it right now. Um, sounds like a no. Well, we've. I don't really know what it is. Voices, music, breathing. But, you know, I'm not going to mess with that thing. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. Subscribe to The Message on iTunes.
0: So, so, I when did you start to realize because the you know you became successful as an actor, a real working actor before you became a writer director? Yes, yes. And I, I want to understand how that happened. So from the one play, did you start getting I plays? I started and doing how did you that. up deciding and to go then, to Yale drama? And then I
2: moved to Chicago. I got tired of the group. We were just like, the band had to break up. We were all driving each other crazy. You can only do comedy together for so many years. And I moved to Chicago, and I started doing just plays on my own there. And then I really started to dig it. And, but I realized I didn't know anything. You, know, I'd be you didn't like, have a craft? No, at all. At all. So I would be at a, like a table read with these real, in Chicago is such a great theater town, and there's so many great actors there. I mean, just a super town. If you're a young actor, I say go there if you want to do theater because you can survive, and and there's just great theater. And, and we'd sit around doing these table reads, and I just realized the way everyone was talking about the process, I had no idea what they were talking about. And and I, particularly, I had, the, I had the lead role in this one play. It was a really interesting adaptation of Dalton Trumbo's Coming Back. And, I, and had the, I was playing the young man in it, and I, um, I didn't know. I really remember sitting there jotting. I would have jot down things for people, were like, should I take a beat here? And I'd be like, what is a beat? A serious? You know, does he actually take the beat? Like, I didn't know anything. So, and I thought, okay, I, you know, in my simple man mentality, which more often not is the case, I thought, me go learn, me apply to Yale, let me go Yale, good. And learn, beat. So that's kind of what drove me to Yale. Really, just like doing a couple plays and realizing I need a craft here. It's interesting. In fact, like you said that so quickly, you didn't have a craft. At the time, I didn't have the language to know I was missing a craft. You know, oh, I mean? you just
0: like I'm missing like um, information information about what this stuff means. I don't want to seem like an idiot. Exactly. I don't want to be an idiot. Yeah.
2: I don't want to be the guy jotting down things I'm looking right. up. Right. You didn't on.
0: realize there was actually an approach, an attack, a choice of, of many different approaches yes. and attacks yep. that you you one could take to do this thing.
2: Yeah. And I think you're around. I remember that watching Doug Hughes direct the front page, just thinking, man, this man is wonderfully intelligent, incredibly articulate, and he talks about process in a way that makes it incredible, makes it very uh, accessible and doable, active. And I thought, what a, what a wonderful, what a wonderful talent to have so i think a couple of these experiences started up. drove me back to yale yeah
0: and were you thinking because so many people get caught up especially now like in their early 20s mid-20s in this idea of success mm-hmm. like people want it, right they always ask you how do you get an age?" right isn't that like people you yeah. do a speech don't people yep. inevitably were you because you're you know as a as a guy now you are you're very like mission focused and you're successful and you've been successful for a long time were you thinking about that stuff then? No. Were you like, how do I book? No. You weren't, no. right? You were just kind of thinking about diving into something that turned you
2: on. Totally. And it was the one thing that really turned me on.
0: You Were, were you a big reader then? Fairly big reader. Because you read, yeah. I mean. Yeah, I do. So you were reading for yeah, fun, but yeah. you'd
2: thought of it, more that way, yeah. right? Yeah, but I had never thought. I just a career in the arts didn't occur to me. I, look, by the time I got to Yale, it started to occur well, to me sure. because it felt valid, even though it was still looking back such an early point in our process, right? But it felt valid. And it, it certainly felt valid to my parents, where they thought, "Well, he's at a good school again. How wrong can he go?" Well, that's a bit. Listen, you know, I think most um, sort of
0: formalized teaching of the arts, I think, is lame.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I don't think most of it is. Really useful because most of the time the teachers aren't of the haven't become the kind of artists they right. should be to teach. Right. But Yale it's one of those places where they are, and it is right. So yeah. it, it is an actual like when you say it's you did distinguish yourself enough to get to be at the place one of the places that that if you have the inner stuff to do it they're gonna give you the they're help you help find right. the tools. Yeah, that right? yeah, was a
2: great place to go to school,
0: and you, you were with a bunch of people who ended up being notable in right, this right, right? Yeah. within your yeah, within they, your yeah. world.
2: Yeah, it's a pretty small collective there and, and they were and they, you know, they attract some good kids. And did you know then that you I'm trying when when
0: <clears> did it occur to you as this so you're acting and you're getting work and you're working at, at Yale. When did it start to occur to you that you wanted to be the person telling the stories. Yeah, well, keep in mind,
2: so I came from this kind of comedy improv background, right? So we were always writing and writing sketches and performing and even directing them. They were all the same thing for me. Like there, uh-huh. I didn't come from formal theater background where you're an actor or a director or a designer. Right.
0: If you guys wanted to be funny, you had to create a thing you, to be funny. You had
2: to write it, and sometimes you'd be like, "You direct this one because we're in it," or "You wrote it and you're in it." And, you know, so it, it all seemed like it was uh, part and parcel, right? And and so when I got to Yale and I started, it was a little more structured. And you know, I was learning. Now you just felt like you kind of, you know, you get beat up because the training is so difficult. and It's so foreign to anything I had done. You know, and you're you're working on check. Up and Shakespeare and these amazing masterworks that make you feel so as a young actor so useless, you know, and and, and it's very challenging and draining in a really exciting and fun way. But uh, simultaneous to that, they have the Yale Cabaret, and suddenly someone said to me, you know, if you want to put something up in that, you should. And I huh. thought, oh, this is so. I started doing that, and and I and I co-wrote and directed a play about Napoleon uh, with a friend of mine that was very physical comedy, kind of funny, three person about. Napoleon one of his field marshals and this woman and I and I ended up directing it and um it was just incredibly exciting and I remember thinking oh I don't have to be out there doing it I get so much from co-writing and I might even co-direct it, I can't remember, but I had so much fun in the collaboration and then watching it, sitting in an audience and watching it work and feeling it. You you mean that got you high even as much, it's the same same high. Same high. And I was like, oh, this is really exciting.
0: Yeah, because it gives you a measure of, you can actually control, like you actually have a measure of, being able to determine your own fate. Then. Yeah,
2: yeah. It was just a totally new, again, it was a completely new experience. And so I, you know, that, the, the cabaret was the turning point. So, you know, when I got out of Yale, I just started, like any young actor, just, just trying to get a job because it's so damn hard. And I started doing regional theater and then some theater in New York and then got a couple of TV movies, things to pay off my tuition. And, yeah. and was working more or less pretty steadily um, when uh, I started to write the station agent. And so at that time when you came
0: to New York you thought to yourself, I'm gonna do this acting thing and then I'm gonna I'm gonna start directing?
2: No, nah, yeah. What what I did was I was always writing. So when I got ah, out of This Yale, is important. Yeah, when I got out of Yale, I just started writing. So at first I was writing like a, I was writing a series of I was almost writing like a one person play. I don't know what it was. I still have it, but it was all these different characters dealing with fear in their lives. And it was all these different scenarios that I was seeing in the world. And I, I had some weird night job at a financial institution where I'd sit in a room and watch all their deals get backed up and if the, if, if the red light went off I had to call someone that was my whole job so, really? it was so weird yeah bearing security they since went under big bank that collapsed uh, I, I wonder why great story right um, so I would sit in this place and write and I would write you know for four or five hours a night and you liked writing loved writing
0: did you worry about whether you were good at it like when you're writing a didn't first draft didn't overthink it do you worry about it when you're writing a first draft no, or you don't? no
2: not really you just step up there and do the I thing. just do it yeah I mean you figure it'll get better and at that point I really didn't know Right, you know, I didn't know if I was good or bad. I didn't really think about and it, and you didn't much. think about
0: how you were gonna so when you started turning that thing, and then then you started writing the station agent. Did you think to yourself, oh, "I have to write something small enough that I could raise the money and go make yeah, it"? Yeah,
2: I was smart enough to do that, and I think at that time, I had then it was is about my mid twenties, and I started to fall in love with cinema. <laughs> that's when so and living so it in New York was right around then and I started going downtown and seeing movies and and, and I just started like I, I started appreciating it almost academically in a different way where I started thinking of it not just as movies but as cinema and like what does that mean and sort of reading more about it and seeing more movies and being more and more influenced and and kind of digging deeper into what I thought I could do and who were the direct, like who were the writer directors it was, it who was hit all, you then? it was all over the place because I would go to film form a lot and see whoever and I remember I was you know at that point really the like French New Wave big surprise right like so ro- so just cool and edgy and romantic stuff, and new, yeah. and, and was super dinging it and then you know every now and again like I mean, and, like Melville Truffaut everyone Godard yeah yeah probably probably less Melville who I got into later and I feel like he's a little bit more classic in his in his work to some degree yeah, but like my, when I started watching those movies he was my favorite yeah he's amazing I mean amazing that. and um, but uh, you know I just started started watching everything that would come through town and just I had, more, I had time on my hands so I started seeing movies and thinking about it and, and thinking what I would do and how I would approach it and and then I thought well if I'm thinking getting so into movies why don't I put this play aside and write a small movie
0: uh, right so you were thinking about at that time camera performance as an actor. like yeah. you were you were then for the first time actually being analytical like loving it but being analytical also yeah
2: which I feel like for most for most people I know uh, who know way more about movies than I do uh, as we know there's different types in our in our business you know yeah. uh, I feel like they knew when they were 14 13 12 and that you know, the super 8 and we worked at a video store at eight you know and that wasn't me I had all kinds of different interests so I came to it like most things in my life late right later it was the same you grew the six inches yeah. at a different time <laughs> totally I, th- at that point I grew six more inches <laughs> right yeah, then you became six <laughs> it's incredible six. that's why I'm now eight two have you <laughs> mentioned that to fantastic. people no I was gonna leave that at the end no the one
0: ever talks about
2: it
1: <laughs> for
0: that guy in the Guinness Book of World Record picture with the glasses <laughs> for photographs. when we were, were kids that's a guy whose name I should really know. You know what? we That's a name. You know that really the tall guy with the glasses yeah. that yeah. was eight feet? Yeah. That's a name I should walk around with. I'm mortified yeah. that I don't know
2: his name. Does Jason know it? Can nah, he, it's, it's, it
0: doesn't count if you I can't internet it. I'm not going to pretend to- uh, Can't you consider him like a your- A store of knowledge okay. I don't have. All right. I don't have it. He doesn't even care. He's not even looking it up. We'll put him in the show notes, right. the big tall guy with the- Yeah. It was the Guinness Book of Records when we were kids. It was a big deal because they had these, uh, the fattest twins on a mini bikes. And then, do you remember the fattest twins in minibikes? bikes? You yes. do, right? Yeah. The huge twins on the so minibikes. I was so into that
2: stuff. Me too. It was no. the coolest stuff ever. <laughs> These huge twins on minibikes, great Which, picture. Which, by the way, means nothing.
0: Of but it at does. that point, you're like, was, whoa, look at that. And as a
2: young man, I remember thinking, good for them. Yes. They've made something of their the, lives. Yeah, uh, in the yeah. So, and what, you're yeah. watching the movies. Started getting into it. And then, and then literally, I'd love to say there was more magic and excitement about it, but I just started writing The Station Agent. And I think at that Did you point, write
0: it for Danklage? Did you know?
2: No, no. I, I think I wrote it for Ethan Hawke. I don't know if I've ever told Ethan this. Uh, I sort of knew him a little bit. I met him a few times in New York at that time. I just thought he was a great actor and a super cool guy. And, and uh, I, he, I had him in mind as a sort of loner outsider. But I think there's some similarities between Dink and Ethan Hawke. I want you to think about that.
0: I'm going to. I'm not I'm not even yeah. arguing. Yeah. It. Yeah. I'm just, sure that there and are. Then don't
2: answer right away. Just think about it. Come back to it.
0: I don't know that. I, I wonder if back then, you would. if I would have told you in 20 years, Dinklage would be the way bigger star. If You're, you would have... I mean, than, every, under, than everybody. I think if you would have known Dinklage was going to be the way sort of bigger person I, in show business. I would have bought stock.
2: In yeah. Ethan, or, I'm saying, would you have known? In Dink, no. No, you Who knew? Know. Although I will say, you know, part I mean, of- th- you did, I mean, you put Dink, Dinklage but, but on here, the I map to, But I met Dink because when I was, uh, when I, I wrote my first play with this guy at Yale about Napoleon, and then I wrote another play as we were leaving about P.T. Barnum and his House of Wonders, and I, we came down to New York to do it in this tiny theater called the Access Theater, uh, which is still there, uh, down in Chinatown area, like third floor walk-up kind of black box theater, and I put on this play, and I needed a Tom Thumb, and and I started asking him around town. I'm like, who would play? And they're like, everyone's like Peter Dinklage, Peter Dink, Dink, Dink. And I'm like, All right. and I went and saw him in a play. I was doing a play in um, Playwrights Row there, and he was really good. And We met, and I cast him, and he was just amazing. Is this sort of really maniacal Tom Thumb? And I remember watching him every night was a different performance, which in the theater can be good or bad. But he was just a fearless, super compelling actor I mean he is he still yeah. is but but even then he was and so you knew he was great I knew from that moment he was a leading man uh, on stage because he just had the voice and the look and the confidence you know leading man is all about something other than looks and anything it's about a confidence you know now it's more often not confused with like leading man looks and as we all know that's not it
0: no but I mean it's confused by that you're
2: saying by the industry sometimes yeah, yeah, I think but so. that's not who ends up becoming the successful no, leading not man. the really great leading mans that we love you know so Pete had this thing. And then uh, years later, when I was writing a station agent, uh, um, I had this idea of character. I, was, I had the kind of depot and the town and the area in my head, and I was putting the story together, and I literally ran into him right down around 8th and 16th Street. He was coming back from a job. He was temping at the time, which just always, I love the idea of Pete temping for some reason. And um, we had this long conversation. I was walking away from him, and I thought, oh, man, he would be really interesting in this role. Huh.
0: I finished the
2: script I didn't I called him the next day and I said hey man I'm thinking about doing this and he was very not dismissive but you feel like he had had those offers before
0: oh without them really He's following, following them through and he was like yeah. great
2: let me know when you got the script and I was like come on uh, be more excited about it but that's not his way and, uh, and I finished the script and I sent it to him and um, like three years later we made the movie why did it take so long I mean, you read that script. I was a first-time writer-director. You read that script, it doesn't scream box office, right? And and I think people just didn't get it. And I think really what they didn't get is the humor in the movie. I think they thought it was going to be uh, a sad movie, just sad movie and a slow movie. Um, but you know, in I, New York, I think everybody's seen that movie. But I
0: wonder if people watching, listening to this, hmm. They, you know, they may be interested in you because Spotlight's this sort of big deal now. Yeah. And they, you know, it's worth finding that movie for people to, to see. I think they it's
2: should... on Netflix, but I don't even know that. I'm sure it's on one of those things, either Netflix it's or— be. I love when people find movies later on, and I think it's the great thing about movies, you know, and it happens to me all the time where they've seen two or my movies and haven't seen that or haven't seen Win-Win or haven't seen whatever, but— um, were, you, were you able to talk to actors because you were an actor easily sort of from the beginning? I think I helped. I think that helped. I think also when I was at Yale as an acting student I watched a lot of very good directors talk to actors and talk about acting and there was a couple in particular James Bundy who now runs the Yale Drama School I thought was a great example of a hyper articulate director who like was incredibly accessible But
0: just to bring us back to to spotlight because if I think about Station Agent you were working with important local actors but not you know Patricia Clarkson and Bobby I mean you put Bobby on the map with that with that movie, and then I mean Patricia Clarkson had done a whole bunch of good yeah. important work before that. Yeah, and then Richard Jenkins—he was known to movie people, but not famous until yeah. *The Visitor*. That's what yeah. made him famous. Yeah. Um, and when when you're directing your good old friend, uh, who's the movie star in that movie, Paul Giamatti, right? Um, th- in *Spotlight*, you have just a hitter's row, yeah, of movie stars, yeah, and TV stars, yeah, and. It's entirely different. It's executed on a scale that's different than anything else that you've done. It's still a small movie relative to Avatar. Right. But you have, you know, Michael Keaton and Liev Schreiber and Mark Ruffalo and Rachel McAdams. And each one of these people is giving a singular performance. I mean, and yet it's, it has a unity. right? And how did you think about that? You know, did you intentionally cast movie stars? Was there a reason? Slattery? Was there a reason that you, you cast sort of people who were instantly recognizable and
2: had a, a, a clear public persona? No, I felt like this was a movie, for some reason, that could hold that, especially as we started to assemble the cast. And um, there was something about these journalists. They were our heroes, but they were completely anonymous. And there was something about that I'd never told at this point as a writer-director, never told a a story based on actual events. So I, I felt sort of freed up by that in a cool way. And look, some of it's money. This movie costs more money than my other movies maybe combined almost and um and that's not still not a lot of money as you well know but um at a certain point you need to kind of you need to provide actors that mean something in this case it just happened to be one of those great instances where you know the first actor I went out to Mark Ruffalo was just the, not only a movie star now but just a great actor and was the most right person for this role He's, hands down I mean I'll say the movie
0: is the acting in this movie is incredibly, yeah, they're just so incredibly great. great. Every single one of them. I mean, yeah. whether it's Tucci in a, a small but yeah. important role, who's incredible, or, you know, Billy Crudup, Crudup in, I think, for me, almost famous in this, are the two dis- Billy Crudup performances that are unlike any others. You really, in the Son, he's pretty great, but you really got something yeah. different in, out of, out of a- Billy. All those
2: guys, and I, and I agree, but we just, we started putting the cast together, and it was like, a lot of these people are people I've, are colleagues that I just haven't worked with, but I've known. You know, uh, John Slattery, uh, Mark Ruffalo, Liev Schreiber, Stanley Tucci. These are people I just sent emails to with a script and said, hey, I got the script, what do you think? And then I sent to their agent to be the to do by proper protocol, but I went right directly to them. I've known them for a long time. And then there were some that I've known of but haven't known personally, like Michael Keaton and Rachel McAdams. And, you know, Rachel was the one I had to pause on because I knew her as this kind of big movie star of a certain type of movie, and I hadn't seen her do something like this. And, man, what a delight she was to work with and she totally jumped in and played her role. And, and not like a movie star at all. No. There are these small moments yeah. of her interviewing somebody in a
0: coffee yeah. shop yeah. where you're just. You forget. Uh, she breaks your heart. Yeah. The specificity of her at home, her home life. Yeah. And her, her willing. There's no vanity. I would say, you know, Tucci's character has vanity, has a certain kind of yeah. Uh, vanity. Yeah. And Crudup's character has a certain kind of vanity. But the performances are without vanity. And I, I think about what Liev did. And somehow, it's the, almost the opposite, you know, it's great because the power of what he brings, the iconography from the theater stuff and Ray Donovan, it makes you know this is a formidable person. And then the choices you guys made, the way he carries himself.
2: It's all just on the inside. Yeah, yeah, that's strength. Now, Liev's is a tremendous actor, and it is it, so restrained in this film that it yeah. channels his strength and his energy in a really specific, in a completely way. different way. But I have to say, a lot of that, I think, you know, look, I think in terms of the screenplay, in terms of the tone of the movie, and ultimately in terms of the acting, the inspiration in many cases was a direct result of the people in the parts we were playing. Right. So the reporters were, in fact, the inspiration, and they are just that way. I mean, if you, the movie even gets more interesting if you meet the actual people, because they really capture the essence of each one well, of these Well, I'm sure reporters. they'll be out talking to people as you guys promote the they film They have come out something. a few times. And we had this amazing, I will say, a really great moment in Toronto where we screened the movie. The movie was screened very well. I walked out on stage. I introduced the six actors who play the six lead reporters and two, or four reporters and two editors. And the place went crazy, because that's a great line upright. And then I said, well, it's a special treat. I now have... The real heroes. Oh, of the movie. that's great! The six reporters of the Spotlight team, uh, including the, Marty Barron, the editor of the paper at the time, who's now at the Washington Post. And these, I introduced them, and they walked out. And the place went. It was like I'd introduced six astronauts. The place went ballistic, and 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 continued to gave them a standing ovation for their work, which the audience, I think, in that moment realized, man, these people do this without any acclaim. Well, and what was so great about the exploration is these people who are heroic, but who.
0: Like you're an Irish Catholic guy making the movie, grew mm-hmm. up in an Irish Catholic family.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Obviously, the church had a certain role or the place of the church and its import mm-hmm. really mattered. Mm-hmm. And you know, you and I met. We've met. We've, we've met a long time ago, but we met to talk about this movie once. You mm-hmm. know, before you wrote it, and I remember you talking about it and how important it was to you to to serve all of this, to not just like attack
2: anything, but mm-hmm. to actually try to get to the heart of why this stuff really matters. Well, look, the movie's... If anything, it is a journalism movie, right? And and maybe, and I think what's been so far interesting talking about this movie, it works on two avenues. On one, it's a journalism movie. On the other, it's a movie about institutional abuse, specifically in this case, the Catholic Church. But, yeah, having been raised Catholic, being Irish American heritage, having gone to Boston College, having lived in Boston, I did feel like this was a story I could tell. And that uh, specifically I thought I could bring a certain amount of empathy and humanity to humanity to it because I feel like this isn't about bashing the church. Right. This is really about getting to the truth. And I think to do that, you have to recognize that there's, there is just, it's not a black and white issue. It's incredibly gray. And I think as we dug into our investigation of their investigation. What was most compelling is this idea of societal deference and complicity. The idea that these massive crimes, and this is a massive institutional crime that sadly is still happening today, they don't happen in a vacuum. That it does take a village for these crimes to exist and persist. And for me, when we tapped into that, my co-writer Josh Singer and I, on this particular one, the project took on a whole new sense of relevance and urgency. Well, sure, because you can
0: substitute the government you can substitute any big organization that just rolls
2: forward or that starts or to individual. believe or say again or individual
0: yes you know sure
2: Absolutely, I organism. Mean, any kind of an organism. Yeah, like you know, that. David Carr, sadly, you may yeah. know, passed away a couple months yes. ago. I thought was a brilliant writer. Yeah, wrote this on. great piece on, in the New York Times, probably three or four weeks before he passed away, on Bill Cosby. And if you, if you want to Google it, David Carr and Bill Cosby, and read this I've article, read it. it's Times a great because piece. what it talks about is exactly that. Carr asked the question, "Hey, why are we getting this now?"
0: Well, he was mad at himself and every, for having and done that interview. Else. I remember the piece. Yep. he was mad at himself for exactly. having done the interview years before and knowing he should ask it. And, and not didn't. being able to ask exactly. it. and it, Well, that's the great man thing, too. And you have that great scene where, I'm just blanking on that great character actor's name, David. Um, you know, uh, Paul... Uh,
2: Paul Guilfoy. Paul Guilfoy. Great actor.
0: Um, Paul Guilfoy, you know, that incredible scene where he's yeah. looking at our, yeah. our heroes. Yeah. And you can feel in that scene, uh, it would be so easy for you to just paint him as pure evil. Right. And their actions are evil. right? But the actions of the, the, the cover-up was an evil thing no right. matter what. Right, Exactly. But the way that he lays out his arguments about the purpose of the church, about why, about balancing the equities, that kind of mission creep is endemic of like the worst decisions we've made as a society and as humans um, to forgive uh, monstrous
2: things, and because we think, well. It'll be better right. overall. Right. And, and look, and a lot of these, these aren't usually just one big bad person or one big bad decision. It's a lot of small bad decisions, a lot of subtle bad decisions, a lot of nudges, winks, a lot of looking the other way, a lot of ignoring the smoke. It's a lot of these just bad choices we make collectively. Why usually? That's a compelling question. Is it because the, because to address it just takes too much work and it's just ter- too horrific to actually recognize? Or is it something more than but, that? But I think, and I understand why you're talking about it in this way, and it's true. Mm-hmm. But the
0: movie avoids being polemical and avoids, right. I think, being preaching right. because of the self-doubt. Instead of painting these reporters as certain and as heroic the whole time, I think what I love about the film is that... You see the cost this has to them, not just the sort of societal cost. You kind of do away with that with just a couple of the characters. The idea of oh, not wanting to pay the price in in the community, right? But they're at war with themselves over their final little bit of idealism they didn't even know they had. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Hero worship they forgot mm-hmm. even was even driving the bus for them. Yeah. And I imagine that that was a lot. I don't know how you found that or where you found that in it, or if the reporters talked to you about it, but. The those nights where they're wrestling with what actually matters to them as human beings mm-hmm. is I think at the heart of, of 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 what it actually costs you as a person to do something mm-hmm.
2: brave. Mm-hmm. Don't you think? I, I think so. I mean we have to remember that, you know, these are just I mean, what I love, uh, my sort of deeper understanding of, of real journalists, high level, high end journalism is, it's just these guys are so blue collar in their approach, right? <laughs> they get up in the morning, they live in these communities, they love these these reporters and editors love this city, the city of Boston. They they knew more about it than most of us, uh, than most of their readership probably, and because they cared and and taking on this story took a, a, a deep emotional well because toll. they realized that their own institute. I just weren't even talking about yeah. it. Yeah.
0: As I'm thinking about uh, replaying it in my mind, I mean, they realized that their own institution was as complicit
2: as the church. If not deferential, possibly complicit, and well, I think that's a good you, question. Well,
0: your movie says complicit. Right. Uh, your movie says that by being—your movie says—because you have the characters say it. They mm-hmm. say, if we missed this those years back, it's inexcusable. I mean, mm-hmm. the, right? They do say, yeah. wait, we, we couldn't have—in fact, you know, for
2: the longest time in the movie, yeah. the guy's going— we can't have missed it, because if we did, it's, it's not good. It's not acceptable. But look, that is a little bit of the, there's two sides of that story, right? It's a little bit the occupational hazard of, of, of journalism, right? Uh, Missing things fall through the cracks. It's human. Like, you don't get every story when you should. So, I acknowledge that's part of it. The other question raises: what was the culture of the city and of the paper at that time? Yeah, that who were they, they serving? That might
0: have allowed that to happen. Who were they serving? Because what did they believe? Right. I was thinking about this as I was reading the New York Times cover story from uh, by the time this is up, a couple of weeks ago, about about and what really happened there. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you saw it, but you know Seymour Hirsch wrote. Just this started thing. to read it today. And there's I, a great rebuttal today uh, by that author, is by it? Mark Bowden. Yeah, yeah, check it out. But what's interesting is that both of these journalists, even in the article, Bowden is saying, "I don't think this is possible." Even in the big article, mm-hmm. he's saying, "I don't think this is possible." Mm-hmm. And Seymour Hirsch, who's a legendary great journalist, okay. is sort of saying, "Look, you, we have to be willing." to question whether it could have happened this way. And I kept thinking about your movie. Yeah, that's interesting. And I was thinking, well, when will we know? Right. We're not going to know today. Right, you're right. We're five
2: years away. Right. I mean, we're four years from when that happened. Right. Are we going to know in... 10 more years? I don't know. Look, I know when we sat down off the record with a couple of reporters who worked there, one in particular, and she doesn't mind going on the record, Eileen McNamara, who's referenced in the movie. Uh, we asked her, hey, you guys, the paper did a, this is an amazing story for them, and they did a hell of a lot of good work. And we said, does you think there's anything after two years of reporting on this they missed? And she said, point blank, I think we should have asked the question, why didn't we get it sooner? <laughs> That's the only question we didn't ask, and it speaks to exactly what we're talking about. The movie and asks the question. Ultimately, it does.
0: Listen, I promised you I'd get you out here in an hour, and it's been more than an hour, so I'm going to let You're you. A man go. of your word. Um, almost. It's a little long, but it's valuable. Look, man, I I am proud to call you a pal, and I got to say you've really stepped up, and and all the sort of promise and talent that you showed on the first three movies. I'm not I'm not leaving the cobbler out, though okay. I sort of am. Yeah. I think you really you delivered everything you know and I remember walking out of seeing the screening of the film and I said to my wife Amy and to my creative partner Dave I said that movie Spotlight is every single thing I would ever want to do in making a movie and that's not something I've ever said on this podcast about I someone's praise movie. From you. I take that very but I it praise. is it's you you have delivered uh, I think for someone like me who grew up you know I love all the President's Men and The Insider is one of my favorite movies of the last 15 years and I would stack this up against the, those two movies any day and uh Congratulations. I, I can't wait to throw darts at you when you're up there giving a whole bunch of <laughs> on the television. being I mean, like, look at Tommy up there putting on
2: his. Look at Tommy, Tommy thinking uh, thinking
0: he's a big shot in that tuxedo. <laughs> look at him up there.
2: But, Incredibly uh, kind. This has been fun. I always love talking with you. Good. good hey, play.
0: Tom McCardle. I'm just going to say this to you. It, he didn't disparage you as a poker player, and he it had nothing to do with the sort of general. Tommy, um, Tommy took your money a few times at the table, never, didn't he? No, we never. No, that's not tr- we uh, never played we never played poker we were gonna and it has nothing to do with the way the editing room would ever smell or anything like that tom guys guys would
2: never st- guys you were some of our noisiest neighbors remember we had to talk to you about that you and we were cutting and- next to each oh other oh my god they're loud you guys are loud it was like a party over there tom likes his quiet oh you're making your little micro <laughs> movie about oh the little
0: precious reporters chasing <laughs> down the gosh. thing and i'm making billions yeah. man billions sorry literally. i'm making billions yeah. Hey Tom McCarthy, are you on uh, Twitter? I'm not. You don't do any of. I'm that. the worst. No, you're. That's why. So he's. Listen, he's doing his thing. You can find me though at Brian compliment <laughs> on Twitter. Do. He'll pass you, it on to me. You can email me at gmail.com. I will not pass stuff on to Tom um, because I'm not going to bother him. I want him sitting there thinking about the next movie, uh, so it'll be uh, another great one, Tom. Thanks a lot, people. Go see Spotlight. Go to the theater for this one, though. Worth seeing it on the screen, as I'm sure I'll do at the New York premiere that Tom's going to invite me to. Thank you, Brian. See ya.